Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Hey, we're going to stay standing. We're going to read God's Word together um, from Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 27. Uh, If you don't have a Bible... Yeah, it's a little bit longer of a passage, I think, that you got, Rachel. Um, if you're using a Bible in the seat in front of you, that's on page, I think, 813, 812, 813. So you're welcome to use one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you. Thank you, Rachel, for reading. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that... Um, it sustains us um, that, that we um, go to your words again to know, know who you are, um, to know who Christ is, um, to know the, the help that the Spirit provides. Um, it also helps us understand ourselves more deeply. Um, and so, Lord, um, we are, we are a, a complex people. Uh, we are a people that you love, um, a people that, that you have sent your Son um, to die for. Um, and so, though we are complex, Lord, we, we also see that through this word that you are a God who is merciful uh, to people who are complex, um, to people who are sinful and messy. And um, we, we praise you for that in this, in this moment. Um, thank you for your word, um, for these scriptures. Um, Lord, we submit ourselves to them now. And we pray that you would help us to understand the things that are challenging to understand. Help us to become the things that uh, we are not um, and and, and help us um, to be who you have called us to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Glad you are here today. You may be seated, yes. Um, Glad you're here today. Things are a little bit different today, as you can tell. Um, You know, we're not all Baptist people in here, but most of you are, and so I saw the look on your faces when you walked in, and you're like, well, where's my chair? Where's my seat? So um, that's that's exactly what we're trying to do around here. That's not why why this is the way that it is. 
Uh, there was a wedding in here yesterday, um, the first ever Grace Harbor wedding. Um, so praise God for that. Uh, the first wedding that we've ever had, um, and the and the, the 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 people getting married. What do you call them? The bride and groom. The bride. Yeah, <laughs> we don't got to get fancy. The bride and groom met here, uh, came together here in this church, and yesterday we were able to see them married. Isaiah, you know, without further ado, Isaiah George and Nadine Bradley. Um, and so both of their families are part of our church, and it was just a really special day. Um, and so this was how the sanctuary was set up. We thought, let's leave it. Let's throw everybody off. So um, looking forward to that. Isaiah and Nadine will be gone for the next few weeks. Um, they're taking a trip of a lifetime. Um, and so really excited for them. Um, I don't know if they want me to share this, but they're actually at the Oklahoma City Zoo today. They're at the zoo today. So they're starting off their trip of a lifetime at the zoo. Um, yeah, everybody text them, say, hey, enjoy the zoo. So I'm just kidding. Or we could, I, I told them we may just all show up there um, after church. And so all of that to say, very happy for them, very happy for their families. And uh, man, again, yesterday was just a, a fun day seeing the way that lots of Grace Harbor folks came around and served, jumped in, all those different things was, was really neat. Um, and so just a fun weekend. Uh, Matthew 7, chapter 13 through 27, page 812. If you don't have a Bible, hey, today's a pretty long passage of Scripture that we're going to dive into, um, and it would be very helpful uh, for you, um, for, your, for your own benefit, to follow along there in the passage, because we're going to, to fly through it. This is a, a big chunk of Scripture. There's a lot here that, if you know me, um, you know that I have the ability to make things a lot more complicated than they are. Um, and so, I could very easily take any section, chunk of this and turn it into two or three weeks, uh, but today, we, we, I really actually just want us to kind of see the way that it flows together and what Jesus is teaching us. And so we spoke last week um, in, the, in the passage on judgment, judging one another, um, that we spoke last week about the idea that Jesus here in this sermon is teaching his disciples, those who are following him. Um, so at the beginning of the sermon, it says that his disciples came and he taught. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples, but um, that he most certainly has in mind through much of his teaching the influence that the Pharisees had on his disciples. And so much of what Jesus is teaching, I would say we could safely assume that the Pharisees are somewhat in earshot, but Jesus also has in mind that the Pharisees had, had been highly, they were highly influential in the spiritual lives of the people of God. And so Jesus here is teaching with that in his mind. In fact, at times, he explicitly calls them out and uses them as an example. Remember what we said last week, everyone's good for something, even if for just a bad example. Um, Jesus makes a, an example of the bad example of the Pharisees. And so there seem to be remnants of that Remnants of that through today's text, but Jesus here, I want us to see this, Jesus here drills down into his immediate crowd of disciples. He drills down really, really um, deeply in the closing of the Sermon on the Mount into the disciples and teaches them about the way that leads to life. It's just kind of the summary of this text, that Jesus is teaching his disciples about the way that leads to life. Um, and Jesus gives both positive and negative examples. He said, there's a way that leads to destruction, 
but he ultimately says there is a way that leads to life and wisdom. And so this closing section of Jesus' teaching is set up in an interesting way. Let's read together. Verse 13 through 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so at the conclusion of this sermon, Jesus acknowledges and teaches that his disciples face a decision. They, just, they, they face a choice. They face a, a decision about what kind of life they're going to pursue as followers of Jesus. And so unlike many today, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He does not sugarcoat this message that he's telling Jesus. Like, like if I were to uh, be the founder of a religion or the leader of a particular religion, this is probably not the thing that I would use to get people to follow, right? In my day, I would want to make things as palpable and as, as, um, as, as sell-worthy as possible, and Jesus out of the gate makes sure that they know that this way of life that he is inviting them into is not an easy way of life. And so if you're a follower of Christ, here's what I, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to hear. If you're a follower of Christ, you may be tempted to somewhat tune this out. You may think, I've already made my decision to follow him. You might, you might say, I've already made the decision to follow him. I was 13 years old at church camp. Remember, we joke around a lot. I was 13, 13 years old at church camp, and I gave my life to Jesus all five nights of church camp every year, just a compounding giving my life to Jesus over and over again. And so maybe you think, I've already given my life to Jesus. But remember here that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That's something really important for us to note, that those who had already begun following Jesus, those who Jesus has already called, Jesus is saying this too. What, what might come to, to our mind in his words here is what he says back in the beginning of the sermon through ver- verses 10 through 12, Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember what we have said all throughout this sermon that Jesus is not talking about what you gotta do in order to be saved, is he? This is not a list of things that you've got to do in order to go to heaven, right? We're gonna see that later in, this, uh, in our own text today. Jesus is declaring what is true of those who are following him. The Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus saying, what is it that marks my people? What is it that marks the kind of way that people within my kingdom live? And so Jesus says they forgive. They they turn the other cheek. They love their enemies. That's what kingdom life looks like. And so this path that Jesus talks about here, this, this difficult path, let me, let me get back to the text, this difficult path, um, the, 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 the way that is hard that leads to life is a path for us as people of God that often means being misunderstood, maybe maligned. Now, let me be clear on something. Uh, being misunderstood may be a, an implication of following Jesus, but just remember, being misunderstood is not a fruit of the Spirit. And so maybe you think, maybe sometimes you think that being misunderstood means that you can act and behave in any way that you want, but no, this is being misunderstood for the right reasons. 
It may be a result of the way that you follow Jesus. So it may mean being misunderstood, maligned, but the text shows us that there's an ongoing nature to the cost of following Jesus. Look what, look, look what it says. It says, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find are few. Remember, this is Jesus not sugarcoating. He says, Jesus not only says that the gate is narrow, look what else he says, the way is hard. Once you're in the gate, it's not just all sunshine and rainbows. It says the gate is narrow and the way that you follow is also hard. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there is no holiday in the spiritual realm. There's no holiday in the spiritual realm. You can check out of a lot of important things in life, but not this thing. There is no holiday in the realm of spirituality or following Jesus. In fact, how often in our own desire to share the gospel or even in our preaching, do we talk about following Jesus the way that Jesus talks about following Jesus? Sometimes we wanna make the message so, so palpable and maybe overly simple in the way that Jesus talks about this path, even as he's sharing with people who are faced with the decision to follow him, he makes sure to let them know this is a very difficult, challenging path. It will cost you everything. It will cost you, that's not a, that's not a great message that's not the message, especially today, that's going to fill up football arenas and all sorts of things and get lots and lots of people to say, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. That's not the, the, that's, that's, that's not the kind of message that Jesus is sharing. And so as a pastor, I have to acknowledge that what Jesus says here is challenging. And, one, and, one, and, 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 and as a person that God is growing within me, the desire to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ I have to acknowledge that the way is hard. Church family, a couple weeks ago, we said that one of our desires for the year ahead is a focus and an emphasis on prayer and evangelism. Can I just tell you that you don't have evangelism without prayer? Can I tell you why? Because you will be persecuted. People will reject the message that you share. People that you trust, people that you love, people that, that you have a lot of relational equity with, and so to just evangelize without prayer is somewhat futile. Very futile. I would not say somewhat futile. It, it is futile. And so we, we pray for people to come to know Jesus, but we know that even for ourselves, as we share this message, what Jesus, what Jesus says about this message is that we will be misunderstood, persecuted, maligned. And Jesus says, look what he says here. This is a, these are some things in here that are a little bit challenging to understand, but are maybe probably not our responsibility to fully define. Jesus says that those who find this way of life are what? Many? Few. That those who find this way of life are few. Now, I don't know what that means, and it is certainly not up to me to determine who and how many that is, rather to be faithful and what God has commanded me to do, right? I don't, know who, I don't know who the few are, but if we're theorizing this, which is often a danger when we read the scriptures, can I just say that what Jesus is, is saying here may actually apply to some of us in this room. We'll see that later in the text, and so I'll just leave you hanging. So while Jesus is honest about the nature of this life on the way, he also reminds us where it leads. Where does he say it leads? What, this hard, narrow way, where does it lead? Life. Life 
abundantly. Jesus is also really honest about the narrow way's reward. And he lays it up against the easy broad way and reminds us where that way of life leads, which is where? Destruction. To utter destruction. But this narrow way of life leads to an abundant life now and for eternity. Hey, listen, we are deeply and greatly concerned about eternity, amen? Deeply concerned about where we spend eternity. But can I also say that the way of life that Jesus often references is a way of life that we live now, a quality and a value in our life now that we are able to experience in following him. So however much you may suffer, however much one may suffer for choosing this path, we are, Jesus says, we are destined for glory. We are destined for glory, and that is something that cannot be taken. That is indestructible. That is something that, is something that we see all throughout the world today, isn't it? We see the way that people live. I mean, I love how David in Psalm 73, or the writer of Psalm 73, I can't recall exactly who, who or if it claims who wrote it, but the, the writer of Psalm 73, he talks about this. I love his honesty. He, he, he talks about how he, he sits and he thinks about the ease and the, and the he, he, one of the things that, here's something that you'll never forget. Psalm 73 is where you, you, the writer says their bodies are fat and sleek. And so if someone figures out how to have a fat but sleek body, let me know, because that seems like impossible. How are you fat and sleek? Man, I'd, I mean, I wish, I'm one of them, but not the other. And so, sorry, I'm distracting, distracting us. But the writer of Psalm 73 says, man, I've, I've thought about this. I've thought about the ease of the life that the ungodly live and how me following the Lord is so hard. And, and then by the end of it, I love how he says, but at the end of the day, it, it seemed to me, but when I sought how to understand this, it came to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and then I discerned their end. And then for him, he says at the end, but for me, he says, despite how they live, for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near to God. And so Psalm 73 sets up this picture really well for us, actually. It's, a, it's maybe a good cross-reference or a good commentary on this small little section that Jesus is teaching. Go there and see that, hey, the, the road may be broad and it may be easy. Those who are not following the Lord, but to those who are following the Lord, it may be hard. And so again, however, however much we may suffer, we are destined for this glory that is indestructible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, if you have not ever read about him or read him, he's got some great books out, uh, but in his book on the cost of discipleship, isn't that a great book? the cost of discipleship. This is what Bonhoeffer says. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. You hear that? 
This is the quote that, this is the part of the, the quote that most of you recognize. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be death like that. It, it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther, which is timely to reference, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Family, I don't know, what that, I don't know that we, this is where maybe some of this relativizes to us. I don't know that we experience much of a costly life in the way that Jesus seems to discuss it here in the good old U.S. of A. Now, that's not true of everyone in this room. I wish you could hear the stories of people in this room who know what the cost of following Jesus looks like in a place that is hostile to faith. Next week, um, next week we will we'll actually watch a video on that. It wasn't quite ready today. But next week, we're gonna wrap up Matthew chapter seven and we'll, we'll show a video of a family who in a country that is hostile to faith talks about the cost of following Jesus. And I just have to say for myself and for us in here that I am not sure that we experience the cost of life in the way that Jesus seems to discuss the cost of the way of life. And I hope that whatever that looks like for you, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's some kind of shady something going on in your business. Maybe it's something in your, in your personal life, in your marriage, that, that you're unwilling to abandon something in order to follow Jesus all the way. And those are somewhat, I don't, I don't know how to, how to fully address all of that, but what I do know is that we live a life of ease and comfort and lack of sacrifice most of the time that seems somewhat foreign to what Jesus called us to and, and was somewhat foreign to what the early church experienced. And so we must move on. Let's read verse 15 through 20. Let's read that. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. And so when we consider this narrow, hard way of following Jesus, we begin to understand all of the implications and potential hurdles that we will encounter along the path. And so after telling us about this path, Jesus tells us about this narrow, hard path. After telling us about this path, Jesus gives us two examples in the text of things that one may encounter that we must be watchful of on this path. One is a danger that exists outside of us, and the other is a danger that may exist in us. And so check this out. Verses 15 through 20, Jesus says, one of the hurdles on this narrow, hard path that may try to kind of get you off course, he says, is false teachers, false prophets. The second thing, verses 21 through 23, is something that maybe exists within us, false hope or false security. And so let's kind of look at those two things. The first one is false teachers. So one characteristic of choosing a path that is broad 
and lead to destruction is the danger of false prophets or teachers. Teachers that may look good, Jesus says. I mean, he says, they may look really good, but over time, they reveal themselves to be bad trees who bear bad fruit. Hey, oftentimes, um, Rick, Rick was telling us about a fig tree that he's got in his, in his backyard. It's like so Old Testament, it was awesome. Um, he's got this tree, fig tree. I didn't even know fig trees still existed, honestly. I'm not a planter. Um, planter? Flower per tree? What do you call those people? Botanist? Gardener? Okay, there we go. I'm not a gardener. I didn't even know fig trees existed anymore. Um, and, and so Rick says he's got this fig tree in his backyard, and after over a long course of time, I can't remember how he shared it, finally it popped out a fig. And then he said they ate it. I've never eaten, I'm such a city kid, I've never eaten anything off a tree. Um, I know, I've never eaten it. I just, I thought whatever came off a tree would kill you. Um, and so I've just never eaten something off a tree, but Rick's just like, I've got this tree in my backyard and I ate, ate something off of it. And I was just like, that does not resonate with me at all. But over time, Rick was able to see that this was a tree that bore good fruit. And Jesus here says about teachers that at first they may look good, but over time you can tell what kind of fruit they bear. And so there is a lot of, I don't know if this is the right word, I certainly don't want to diminish God's word in any way, but there's a lot of metaphor in this chunk with trees and fruit. Jesus is talking about people when he's talking about trees and fruit here. He's talking about teachers. And so the important thing is, not so much the tree and the fruit, but what Jesus is really saying. What is Jesus actually saying here? Jesus is saying that on this easy, broad path, it will be easy for us to fall into the trap of finding teachers and teaching that pull us away from the sound words of Christ. So that maybe the greatest danger, listen to this, y'all. I mean, this is, this is huge. Jesus, Jesus follows up his invitation to choose the narrow way immediately with this potential danger. And, and so what it seems to be is that maybe the greatest danger you and I face on this narrow way is falling into the trap of teachings that somehow give us a pass, a pass on what Jesus has just taught us. Must I really forgive? Must I, must I really turn the other cheek? Does, does Jesus really mean this about marriage? Does Jesus really mean what he says about loving my enemies? Does he really mean what he says about lust? Peacemaking? Really, Jesus, you want us to be persecuted for our faith? Come on, you don't want us to be persecuted, do you? These people that Jesus warned about, they, they appeared before his time on earth was even over. In fact, they continued long after he sent them. Within years, within just a decade or two of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they, they started showing up in the church. You see Paul and John dedicating much of their time to addressing false teaching. Paul and John both dealt with these kinds of false teachers. How, how are we to tell? So here's, here's a practical thing. How are you and I to tell if, these te if, if, the, if the fruit of these teachers is good? Well, John would say that how we stack them up with good fruit is against the teachings of Christ. Second John, go with me. Go with me to second, the book of Second John. You've probably never read that book in your life. I'm just kidding. That was not a judgment call. I'm just saying it's just, it's just hidden. There's not even chapters. It's one, it's one chapter. And so when we talk about a verse in Second John, we don't say Second John 1, 9. We just say Second John 9 because there's 
there's just a few verses in that, in that book. Look what 2 John 7 through 11 says. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of Christ, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so Paul and John, John here specifically, says that how we tell if the fruit of a teacher is good is do they teach and do they abide in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? Do they abide in that teaching? Paul would address this. We're going to spend some time in 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy. We're going to look at 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. Let's read this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so Paul and John both say, they both affirm the teachings of Christ and say that we as the church, again, this is well after the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul and John both say that if you want to stack up a teacher, of what fruit he bears, do they teach and do they command what Christ commanded and, and charge you to do the same? Obey Christ. And so Paul, again, would address this continually. And he says that if someone teaches that which does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, don't listen to that teacher. So, so, does what you hear from your TikTok gals or your theology bros abide in the teaching of Jesus? If yes, great. If not, Paul says, don't even, don't even have them in your house. John says that, I'm sorry, Second John. And so let's be clear that the words and the convictions and the teachings of Paul for godliness in us is what? The words of Jesus. The words and the convictions and the teachings of John for godliness for us is what? The teaching of Jesus. There is no Paul-Jesus distinction anywhere to be found. There is no John-Jesus distinction anywhere to be found. Paul and John's ministry was based upon and the content of their ministry was the gospel that Jesus shared and the teachings that Jesus said. And, and Paul and John both said, if someone tells you or teaches you not to obey the sound teachings of Jesus, they're a false teacher. And so that's what Jesus is warning us here. He says, the way that you choose the broad path that's easy is to say, yeah, those teachings of Jesus don't apply to me. 
I don't need to, I don't need to forgive. Perse- persecution, we can kind of, we got to pass on that. Jesus wants us to have an easy life. We see that all over the place. We see that from people with uh, big, fancy, shiny globes that spin, you know, around them in the picture of, you know, their sermons on TV. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to call people out, but we see those kinds of things that, no, some, following, not just sometimes, following Jesus is costly. So on this hard, narrow path, how are we to discern teachers? Let's just say it again. Does what they teach accord with the sound words and teachings of Christ? That's what John taught. It's what Paul taught. It's what the disciples in the early church based their life upon was the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. So church family, you want an easy path on a broad road? Then stay far, far away from the teachings of Jesus because it probably will cost you very little to not follow the teachings of Jesus. False prophets also are often those who soften the blow of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus says there will be kind of fruit that is bore from them, namely a people who don't look like Christ or submit themselves to him. In fact, this is what Jesus refers to in verses 24 through 27. We'll get there here in just a second. Um, but in 24 through 27, he, Jesus then he puts, he puts himself up against all these false teachers. He says, so build your life on my teachings. Build your life on what I have taught. The one who does is wise, and the one who doesn't is foolish. And so verse 21 through 24, 23, let's read. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the second thing that Jesus warns about this broad path is a sense of false hope or false security. And what is that false security in? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute, but there's probably not a single person in here who at some point in their lives um, has not been confused and terrified of this section, right? You hear it and you're just like, please tell me what this means. Well, let me just say this. I don't know what it means. Well, we're going to explore it together. Let me, let me summarize. Let me quickly summarize this. Maybe oversimplify it. I know a while ago I said we don't need to oversimplify a challenging message, but let me simplify this and say what this section is ultimately about. You ready? Write this down if, you, if you're writing. What these few verses are about is faith in Christ and knowing Christ. Faith in and knowledge of who Christ is. Faith in his work for us. Let me show you that. The text, the text shows us that there is some level of knowledge about God. So I just said that it, it's, it's about knowing Christ, but the text shows us that there is some level of knowledge about God in these standing before God. They know enough at this point to even refer to him as Lord. Not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. But the basis, look, look what's happening in this, in this passage. Look what's missing. And look what's actually happening. The basis upon which they are pleading before God is not the righteousness of Christ or being justified by faith in Christ, but by what? Their own works. Lord, we, we've done these things. And, and, and y'all, this is where, if, if, you've, 
if it's easy to theorize in the beginning, it gets really specific and personal here. Because you can fill in the blanks with almost anything. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not attend church? Did we not give faithfully? Did we not volunteer at the soup kitchen? All of those things important to the Lord, yes, but this is the basis upon which these people are standing before God and crying out to him. Jesus is taking a little step back here after making it very clear that he expects and anticipates his followers to obey him and making sure that we know what it is that ultimately marks our justification before God, not our good works, not the perfection of our obedience, but what? Our faith in him. Our faith in what Christ has done. And I would say that the fruit of that is obedience to what he teaches. James would back me up on that. Part of the, not James Compton, James in the Bible. Um, part of the easy path, Jesus says, we gotta catch this, that part of the easy path is being so busy doing things for God that we completely miss what he wants to do in us. We can be really busy doing things for God. Guys, I've, I've actually like been in seasons like this before. Really busy serving the Lord. Really busy writing sermons. Really busy all of the things that, that, that God calls me to do as a follower of Christ. But then I pull back and, and I say, His, am I allowing God to do the work in me that he wants to do in me that I will do these things from? right? So many times we don't do things from a place of God's work in us. And, and let me just tell you, it is a really beautiful, glorious thing that when we obey Christ and that when we serve Christ, that it's coming from a place of what God is doing in us. And on the opposite, I will say it's really exhausting to be doing a lot of things for God, not from a place of what he has done in us. Have you felt that? Man, it's exhausting to be serving God from a place of not, of, God, of not allowing God to work in our hearts. Remember how Jesus starts all of this. Don't forget what he, how he starts this section. He starts it with a call to life. This is what life is. And here, what he seems to indicate is that the broad path may very well not be full only of those living in rebellion, but those living religiously. He says, hey, the, on, the, on this broad path that there is that's easy, it's not all about the people who are on the highway to hell, right? Like, it's not all about the people partying it up. No, there's a lot of religious activity happening on this broad path. Seems, seems to be what he's addressing here. Lord, did we, not, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not... Cast out demons. Did we don't do many mighty works? And then verse 23, look what Jesus does. Jesus starts the chapter, verse chapter seven, judge not. Last week, remember, we titled the sermon, we did not title the sermon, don't judge. We titled the sermon, how to judge. So Jesus tells us, don't judge, but then he proceeds to tell us how we are to discern. He's even telling us in this, in this section with false teachers, here's how you judge false teachers by their fruit. Here's how you discern these things. But notice what Jesus does in verse 23. Jesus declares himself as the judge. He's the one who judges in righteousness. 
and in lawlessness. And so church family, the purpose of theology, the purpose of following God, what? Is knowing God. Knowing God. That's, that's one of the things that, I, that, that, I'm, that I'm learning in my, my seminary work. I love my professors because I've, I've been in seminaries before where it's just so academic. It's just write the papers and read the books. But I'm part of a seminary right now that, that is for, literally four pastors. They have nothing happening on campus um, except for two weeks out of the year. You go and you, you're poured into and invested in because they know that I get to be here pastoring my people and they're literally investing into me. And what they have told us over and over, in my theology class, by the way, has said the purpose of your theology is to know God, is to love God. Um, I think it's J.I. Packer that says uh, theology that doesn't lead to doxology is idolatry. Does that make sense? Theology that doesn't lead to doxology is idolatry. Let me put that in, in simple terms. What we know about God must lead us to worshiping God, and if it does not, then we are merely making an idol out of theology. Did you know that's possible? To make an idol out of what we know about God? Man, I've, I've known a lot of highly theologically intelligent people who are not worshipful people, who are not loving people, who are not, who are, who are not Christ-like people. And theology that doesn't lead to doxology is idolatry. And Jesus is saying here, it is his desire that you would know me. What an invitation, right? What an invitation by Jesus to say, stop all your religious activity, which by the way, he doesn't say that. He just says, make sure that the religious activity that you are participating in comes from a place of deeply, personally knowing me. So we really don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this because I think, we, I think we, uh, we get the picture by now. But verses 24 through 27 says, everyone then, this is Jesus' summary statement, not only of this section, but maybe of the whole sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock here is, is the teachings of Jesus. That seems to be the context of this rock, is what Jesus has said. Now, we know that we build our life on Christ, but Jesus would even authorize his teachings and his, and his words in such a way that would say, build your life on what I teach. Build your life on me. I'm the chief cornerstone. But also, my word is so good and authoritative that you can build your life on what I have said. That's, that's my word. That's what he's saying in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his, rock, his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and the house fell. And not only did it fall, but it was a great fall. Great was the fall of it. And so here's how, I hope we get the picture. Maybe another time we'll preach just that little chunk of scripture in a whole sermon. But I think we get the picture. Jesus has set his teachings up against the false teachings of the world. 
He has set his teaching and his way of life up against our own false sense of security and hope. And then he says, so build your life on my teaching. Build your life on what I say. We get kind of that, hopefully we get and understand that. But here's what I want us to know. Here's what I want us to know. That Jesus teaches these things, but can I also tell you about this narrow and broad path? This narrow path, this narrow gate, and this hard way of life, Jesus walked this path. Jesus did it. I mean, that's all summed up in, I think, I've, I've preached on John 1.14 before to, I think, here. I think I've preached it at youth camps and, and everywhere. That I think it's actually a, a, a beautiful apologetic. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, the way that, I can't remember who said it, but the way that I've heard one theologian say is majesty stooped. Majesty stooped, came down. The king of heaven came down and he walked this path before us. And remember, this text is by no means telling you how good, telling you how good your works must be in order to get into heaven, but that your faith must be in Christ's ability to walk this path. And then Jesus inviting us to do the same, by the way. So the question is, does Jesus expect us to obey what he teaches here? Yes. But as he has established in this, may that only be from a place of union with Christ and not for acceptance by Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and how it, it speaks and teaches us, um, how it addresses us. And so, Lord, now we, we approach your table in, in, the, in the truth that you have walked this path that you call us to walk. We acknowledge that we walk it imperfectly. We fail. We often choose the broad, easy way when the way that you have laid out is a hard, narrow way, but it is one that leads to, to life. And so, Lord, we just give ourselves to you this morning um, as we approach the table. Lord, any, any, any doubts that we have of your love for us, may they be completely squashed. And being reminded and coming to the table that, Lord, we come empty-handed and yet we walk away with forgiveness of sins, not through these elements, not at this table, but just a, a picture of what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. We praise you for that and we thank you. And we respond now in this way. We pray these things in the name of your son, amen.